Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hi there, I'm Jeremy Scheinwald, and I'm your host of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Um, I'll talk about myself in a minute and our first guest, Andrew Yang, founder of Venture for America, uh, in a moment as well. But for now, um, let me say a word about VFA uh, for those of you who are tuning in and, uh, and are unaware of what Venture for America is all about. So Venture for America is an organization that is committed to building companies and revitalizing cities across America through entrepreneurship. And what that means is VFA um, takes... Uh, uh, top graduates from across the country and helps them find positions with entrepreneurial companies in cities that um, may not normally have the, um, the, the, the may not be normally be the core attraction for those graduates. So um, Send, we send people from, uh, from top schools to cities like Detroit and San Antonio and New Orleans, cities where they need young, amazing talent, and, uh, and we fill the ranks of their entrepreneurial ventures and, uh, and hope that they'll flourish and hope that these people will stay and help to build new companies and to revitalize uh, those cities by creating jobs. Uh, so that is, that's, that's VFA in a nutshell. Today, I am interviewing, um, I must admit, I'm interviewing an old friend of mine. Uh, Andrew Yang and I have, uh, have been friends for quite a long time and, and we're business uh, affiliates for quite a long time as well. Andrew, um, as I noted, is the founder and CEO of Venture for America um, and has worked with startups and early stage growth companies um, for the, about the last 12 years. Um, prior to that, I came to know him when he became uh, CEO and president of Manhattan GMAT, uh, a test prep company that was acquired by the Washington Post slash Kaplan in 2009. Um, he also served as the co-founder of an internet uh, company and as an executive at a healthcare software startup. Uh, Andrew was named a champion of change by the White House for his work with VFA and one of Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business, among other awards. He's the author of Smart People Should Build Things, um, published by Harper Business, about the ideas behind VFA. He's appeared on CNBC, Morning Joe, Fox News. Um, you count the, uh, you name the, uh, the, the media outlet, Andrew has been there. Uh, he's a graduate of Columbia Law School and Brown University, and he lives in New York City with his wife, son, and little fluffy white dog. Um, and, uh, and Andrew, I think you'll find, is, uh, is a great interview. He's a, he's a colorful 
uh, storyteller. I guess uh, the easy part here, I am Jeremy Scheinwald. I am the founder of missiondrivengroup.com. You can check that out. Uh, we're a portfolio of student-related companies, which is where we uh, jibe quite nicely with uh, with uh, Andrew's old company, Manhattan GMAT, where we still have a partnership to this day. And uh, and I'm a committed entrepreneur. Um, there are four companies under our brands and uh, under under our umbrella. And, uh, and this is a real labor of love for me. I'm excited about this podcast because it's going to give me an opportunity to interview many other entrepreneurs and to hear the gritty stories. Um, today, entrepreneurship is very glamorous, and it seems like not a day goes by without hearing about another massive round of funding. And we're going to hear the stories of entrepreneurs um, before they get there. Um, we're hoping to hear some stories from entrepreneurs where maybe it didn't work out. Um, and we're hoping to hear some of, again, the, the gritty stories, the occasional entrepreneur who had to sleep under his desk to, to save a buck uh, or, uh, or, uh, or, or meet payroll by putting it all on his or her credit card. Uh, so those are the stories that I'm excited to tell. And, uh, and I hope that you'll stick with me through this journey and enjoy this pilot and, and tune in regularly. Thank you very much and enjoy the show. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. We're here with Venture for America founder Andrew Yang. Thanks for thanks for being here, Andrew. Uh, it's my pleasure, Jeremy. I guess considering it's a VFA podcast, you kind of you kind of got to be here. Yes, my my appearance was inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the pilot, and uh, and uh, we're thrilled to have you as our first uh, our first guest. Um, we all know you as uh, as the founder of VFA and as the former CEO of Manhattan GMAT uh, as well. But at first, you were a lawyer. What led you down that path? You know, uh, uh, I graduated from Brown in 96 with an economics degree uh, and didn't know what to do. And law school was just one of those things you did if you didn't know what to do at that time. You know, I, I went to law school here in New York at Columbia, and I'd say a significant proportion of the people there were sort of like me, where they just <laughs> sort of had stumbled into law school. Um, and I found law school didn't clarify a whole lot, and, and so I became a corporate attorney here in New York, also at a law firm, Davis Broken Wardwell. So uh, that, that law firm experience was great, uh, in part because it made me more detail-oriented, but in part because it inoculated me against certain forms of work. Uh, I only lasted about five months as a corporate attorney before leaving to co-found a company. So uh, that, that I really, there was not a great approach in terms of choosing uh, law school as a path after college. And, and Davis Polk, prestige firm here in New York, was there any pressure on you to stay? Um, family pressure? Um, I don't know. Did you feel any? Did you feel any loss of prestige leaving? What What led you to leave, and and how did how did others and and you deal with it? Well, I mean, it was a, certainly a, a bit of a leap in that I was getting paid moderately well as a uh, as a lawyer, and I was not getting paid anything when I started a company. It's quite the opposite. I was going around asking people for money, and my parents were nervous and concerned. Uh, you know, I told them, "Look, don't don't worry about me. I'll, I'll figure it out." Uh, I'd saved about 10000 for my time at the firm, which I thought would last me like a certain number of months. Um, went through that, ended up going to credit cards, went, you know, maxed out credit cards. Uh, and uh, it was, I think, about eight or nine months before someone actually invested in the company. I remember running to the bank after we got that first check so, so I could cash it before they changed their minds. <laughs> um, so that, it was certainly a big leap of faith, but I, I felt very confident that 
Uh, I'd rather uh, be trying to build something rather than be the guy who is documenting someone else building something, which is essentially what my job was uh, as a lawyer. So what, what, what was that that you built? What was that first venture? It was a very dot-com 1.0 idea. It was called stargiving.com. We uh, were a combination of something called a hunger site, which is now freerice.com, and celebrity-affiliated fundraising. So uh, you would get Magic Johnson uh, or Hootie and the Blowfish to donate a meet and greet with themselves to benefit uh, a nonprofit they liked. And then if someone clicked on the button, they were shown sponsors that would donate to the nonprofit. And then one person who clicked on the button would actually meet the celebrities. So uh, it was like a combination of uh, of click to donate and then also celebrity meet and greets to, to raise money for charity. Was it before its time, or uh, what, well, what, what you know, was the... I'm happy to say that uh, now, approximately 15 years later, a company is doing this successfully. <laughs> so, you know, there's a startup saying is that um, being too early is the same as being wrong. <laughs> and uh, certainly, it felt very wrong when the bubble burst and the tide went out, and, uh, you know, our little company wasn't able to survive. So how long did how long were you at uh, at stargiving.com for? Um you know it was about the better part of 2 years or so. Uh when the the company went under, I still owed 100,000 in law school debt because that hadn't magically evaporated. I was like 25, 26 uh and uh just lost people another quarter million in investment. So it, it was my professional low, uh, I'm sure. Uh, I remember lying on the floor looking up being like, "Wow, like, you know, th- things don't look so good." And my parents were I'm really concerned at this point, um, but I have to say that period made me feel like I could uh, go through just about anything for the next number of years afterwards. Because you realize that you know you survive, uh, everyone else survives, and and everyone just um, you know finds other things to to do and to build. And so then I think so you you dip back into the into the entrepreneurial world briefly, and then. Um, through some uh, event promotion and the like? Oh, so I, well, I, I went from uh, Stargiving's failure. I mean, honestly, I needed a job. I didn't have any money. <laughs> I owed, you know, I used to call my law school debt my mistress because it was like I was like <laughs> sending a check to support some family someplace else. Was, you know what I mean? It was like, a, it was like over $1,000 a month. I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, that you could like feed some people on that. Um, so I just needed a job. Uh, I uh, had friends who uh, referred me to various people, and I ended up working with a small team at a wireless software company called Crisp Wireless that then ran out of money uh, within the first number of months I was working there. So I was like back to living on credit cards, and I saw, you know, like colleagues of mine like get evicted and like move into our office with their like you know sleeping bags and stuff. People were, like sleeping in the conference room. Uh, and this was 2002, which was a rough time economically overall. Uh, so I, I was pretty discouraged. I went from there to another startup that raised about $7 million and was much more stable. And I was there for four years. Uh, I was a healthcare software company. And while I was there, I, and because you know you and I um, knew each other uh, shortly thereafter, like I started uh, throwing parties on the side um, as a way to... to uh, um, really, honestly, meet women um, uh, <laughs> it was because, like, I, I thought you were going to go with wet the entrepreneurial appetite no, while no, doing I something mean, uh, more corporate. <laughs> uh, it was to meet women. Got it. Well, I, so <laughs> so I was talking to friends, and they were like, "Hey, you know, we live in these tiny apartments. Like, how are we going to host people?" It's like, well, we certainly can't host people in our apartments because you know we like live with roommates and we live on top of each other. So I was like, well, you know, if you threw parties at a lounge, I mean, it would be sort of like uh, hosting something. Um, so that was the the catalyst for it, and then it ended up being a great learning experience. Uh, I also. T- Took to teaching the G-Men on the side. I was introduced to Zeke uh, around 2002 as well, 2001 actually, and uh, and so I was doing a couple things on the side while I was working for the healthcare software company. 
And and uh, so tell us tell tell us about your your evolution at Manhattan GMAT and and uh, how you found Zeke and and how your role continued to grow there. So I met Zeke at a Starbucks. Uh, at the time, uh, he was working alone as a one-person company, and I was the first uh, curriculum developer where I wrote some problem sets for his first uh, materials or the company's first materials. And this is 2001. We were introduced because I went to high school with Zeke's college roommate. And, and so uh, just someone, my friend reached out and said, hey, I really want you to meet my friend Zeke. Uh, I, th- I think that um, you're really good at tests. <laughs> For appropriate context here, by the way, Zeke Vanderhoek, the founder of Manhattan GMAT. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I guess I had a reputation for being good at tests. So, so they, <laughs> they were like, hey, you, you know, you're really, really good at filling out bubbles. Um, you know, you should meet with Zeke because he's, he's uh, helping people do well on, on the GMAT. So Zeke and I met in a Starbucks, and then I, I did some work uh, for Zeke, and we became friends. And then Zeke would have me... Um, fill in for him when he couldn't do something. So I remember there was an info session literally at a deli downtown. <laughs> and I, I should ask Zeke about this. I have to, like, he was quote unquote unavailable just because he didn't want to do it. <laughs> so, so, like, I go to this deli and I'm like <laughs> talking to people about the GMAT. Uh, you know, I think the, we got a little bit of business out of it. Um, so that was like 2002, 2003. I, I did another presentation at a bar and I swear, like, no one wanted to listen <laughs> to the GMAT. There was like music, there were, you know, it was like a happy hour, people mingling. So I, I would fill in for Zeke, maybe maybe in part because I would take um, difficult assignments, uh, but uh, Zeke saw me as someone who um, could add value beyond the classroom. Uh, so he and I would talk about the business sometimes. Um, you know, I, I would uh, teach courses periodically. And so he started seeing me as, as someone who could potentially even uh, evolve into the head of the business uh, if he decided to step away. I love the uh, the 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 delis and bars. I think is is definitely uh, definitely peeling back uh, the layers on entrepreneurship and getting getting to the heart of it there. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, now now Manhattan GMAT, as you know, is like the big biggest GMAT prep company in the country. <laughs> so uh, yeah. so you started as you started as an instructor. You started helping out problem sets. How, how did you how did you continue to evolve into into CEO? Well, so Zeke and I would talk about the business. I mean, he 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 knew that I'd um, co-founded a company that did not work out, but you know had, had had some executive experience. And then at MMF, I was running a team, so we would talk about how each business was growing. Uh, and part of it uh, is that we became friends, and I believe he liked and trusted me. And so when he started looking for people to serve in an executive capacity, he was looking for someone who knew the product. Um, so that was a relatively small group of people because there weren't that many instructors. Um, as you know, Manhattan GMAT required a 99th percentile score in the GMAT, so you're already like excluding <laughs> a whole lot of the population <laughs> as like potential uh, managers. So he wanted someone who was a teacher and knew the product, but also um, that he knew and trusted and, and had a sense of their uh, operating in a business context. Um, so I, I have to admit, it was probably a relatively small group of people to, to choose from at that time. So give us some context here. Tell us about the growth of Manhattan GMAT from the time that uh, from the time that you took over, I suppose. Or maybe tell us about where it was when you took over, and then tell us where you took it. Well, when, when I joined the company, it had six employees. It was very small. Um, all of us were piled into this little office. Uh, and uh, there was like one one half of one floor with um, one classroom and then a second room that we used as a computer lab. And we were in a, a couple of other places, but no other offices. Um, the, the whole business was really quite modest. It was like, a, I think, a well-regarded boutique. Um, in terms of revenues, I mean, when I joined, it was, um, you know, between two and three million. And, and uh, this year, it'll be something like 
um, you know, almost 10 times that. So uh, the, the next number of years were really positive for the business. Um, you know, when I, I took over the business as CEO, uh, uh, the full-time team was maybe 10 people, and like, uh, and now including instructors, um, the and this is uh, you know not quite apples to oranges, but now now the company employs over 120 people, um, either as instructors or or team members. And I know you're, you know, I've talked about this a lot over the years. Um, our affinity for bootstrapping and and uh, um, you know I'm assuming the Manhattan GMAT, which became quite a juggernaut um, and uh, and really became the gold standard in uh, in its in its in its uh, niche of education could have taken cash at a lot of points if it wanted to why did you guys go it alone well we, we were fortunate enough to be getting what I consider the best form of investment which is just money from customers <laughs> you know it's like uh, it, it gives you a better sense as to um, what you're doing right and what you're not doing right and so because we were growing and profitable, uh, there was never that much of a need to, to ramp up in terms of investment capital. And that was an adjustment for me because certainly at MMF and Crisp Wireless and Stargiving, you were always courting investors. You always had this like big growth story you were selling. And I was kind of accustomed to that. It was like a venture capital mindset. And so uh, I actually really was uncomfortable with a bootstrapping mindset for the first little while, but then I grew to love it. I still love it to this day. Uh, it's so much better to be able to focus on the business and be responsive to what your customers are uh, enjoying or are not enjoying, um, as opposed to telling stories to investors, because so often you end up serving more than one master, and a business is best when you're only serving one. And all this time, you're, you're battling a, a better-funded incumbent, and this incumbent is trying so hard to take you down that they've they've printed bumper stickers that say take that Andrew Yang this is a fact this is this is not a um, hyperbole uh, or, or an urban myth they, they actually went and printed bumper stickers um, were there were there moments where you were just like how are we gonna how are we gonna climb this mountain or were you were you fearless throughout you know what? One benefit to Manhattan G- So when I was at these other companies, I was always hustling and networking and feeling like, hey, if I could like meet someone who maybe wants to invest or, um, you know, like can help the company in some way. When when you run an educational business like Manhattan Prep, uh, there really aren't that many people that could help you. You know, especially if you're not looking for money. So uh, I had my heads down just building the business, and uh, as a result the context I felt felt like would just take care of itself. Like if we just grew and did a good job and grew and just worked diligently uh, week in and week out, then uh, the comp- then the market would reward us and uh, students would achieve their, their goals and, and we'd grow. So the the greater landscape in terms of Kaplan, I mean, they had obviously, you know, like tens of millions more than we did. But we felt confident that the biggest variable for an individual student is just their own outcome. And uh, for a prospective student, it's what their friends say. And, you know, Kaplan could spend money, but they couldn't control that. What, um, I mean, ultimately, you, you sold to Kaplan. And how does, how does this, how, not just the decision making around that, but how, does, how do you trust a competitor to evaluate you as a firm and go through your books and your customer lists and all those things to make sure that you're, 
you're the real deal. You know, it's it's funny because like years and years ago, like earlier, uh, I get an email from the general counsel of Kaplan um, saying, "Hey, you have this thing in the forum. It's like we don't like it." And I was like, "Oh yeah, sure, we'll take it down." And you know, because it was something like I, you know, I, we weren't even responsible for it. So I was just like, "Yeah, well, we'll, we'll modify that for you." And Your legal like, education coming in handy there. Well, you know, it's it just like we're, we're, you know, very happy to, to agree with them. And it's like, hey, hopefully we'll have some some more um, positive things to talk about in the future. And then the general counsel actually took that as like, aha, uh-huh, that's interesting. <laughs> and so he literally took that to the CEO and was like, hey, I think the, the Manhattan GMAT guys are actually like kind of friendly or like uh, reasonable or, you know, maybe even looking. So um, the CEO of Kaplan uh, then calls me up and is like, hey, you want to have lunch sometime? And this is well before any kind of um, acquisition of the company is being contemplated. This is like maybe, you know, 2007 or something like that. And so we just have lunch, and and um, a- and we had lunch together maybe like once every X months, like uh, like for the years before. And, uh, and so um, when Zeke and I were contemplating, you know, strategic options, which is like the euphemism for, <laughs> like, for doing something, um, I just like pinged uh, JP, whom I'm, I'm friends with to this day, and just said, hey, like, you know, can I come in? You want to chat? And, and so um, there's a bit of a trust relationship. And that was something that, which is funny, considering we were arch rivals and like beating each other's brains out in the market every, every day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, like we, I actually had a sense of um, the um, leadership in terms of their, their personalities, and, and that was really helpful. I guess I had a window into this. Uh, you know, you, you got a little bit restless after the sale. Um, you know, how long did it take for you to start thinking like, you know, I've got I to gotta start something else. I've, I've got that itch. Um, and also you walked away from, from what I understand, you walked away from some incentives that were there if you would have stayed longer. How, how did you, uh, I mean, clearly I know how you felt about that, but what was that like? You know, I, I really thought I'd enjoy working for a big company more. I thought I'd just cruise and make some money and it'd be great. <laughs> so you imagine yourself staying? Well, I, I imagine myself um, certainly more relaxed than I was. Um, so I I'd thought about what would become Venture for America really for years uh, before that, uh, because, as you, you know, I went to law school and thought it wasn't great. Uh, and, and systemically, I thought law school was really actually quite uh, poor in the sense that there were a lot of people that are emerging that, you know, were doing jobs they weren't excited about or like constrained by the debt loads. Uh, and I'd personally taught the analyst classes at McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and these companies in Manhattan. GMAT, and so I saw that it wasn't just a law school thing, it was like a, you know, like a smart people thing, <laughs> or at least a highly educated people thing, because it's not the same um, thing as being smart, uh, that there were all these people doing these things that represented achievement and weren't that excited about it, uh, and so I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if there was some way to channel uh, these same people to small and growing companies that could really use their talents, and maybe these companies could be in cities that could really use a boost, uh, and uh, I, I was inspired in large part by meeting uh, a guy named Charlie Kroll uh, in 2000 and I want to say 2007 where I was back at Brown University for like an entrepreneurship panel and I was there uh, in large part to sell GMAT classes because you know I'm nothing if not a practical guy <laughs> so, so I was I was there and, I, and then Charlie Kroll tells the story about how 
he wanted to be an investment banker at Morgan Stanley, uh, and then he didn't get the the job offer, so he starts his company in Providence, and you know they they flail around for a little while, <laughs> but then eventually they hit their stride. And then as we're sitting there, he's like, "Now my my company has like 90 employees, and it's doing millions in revenue, and I've got a wife and two kids. And so if you told me I'd still be in Providence a decade later, I would have said you were crazy. But now I'm like the mayor. <laughs> I did say he was the mayor. He's a humble guy, <laughs> but, but, but that was like my interpretation. So I, I thought to myself, my God, if we had more people trying to build businesses. Because Providence has an unemployment rate of like ten percent, um, you know. I mean, it's not exactly um, thriving on an unemployment basis. So I thought, wow, these hundred jobs don't exist if Charlie becomes, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley banker and like it said he's in Providence. So I, I thought, wow, if we had more people doing what Charlie actually did as opposed to what Charlie thought he wanted to do when he was twenty-two, then the economy is different, the country is different, uh, Providence is different. And so I, I had this idea really from 2007, 2008 on about what would become Venture for America. But I, I was a I was, I was like CEO of a company, so you know you uh, really um, don't have that much time to do something else. I'm the I'm the sort of person who can can do maximum two or three things at once, <laughs> and that includes like personal life. So I'm not one of these people. that's like oh I've got like ten companies cooking. That's not really my my bag. But how how did you you know you've got a job as the CEO of a company. And it's paying you well, and you're happy, and you've, you've enjoyed it. Or maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, I'm projecting a little bit. Uh, I was there, so I, you seemed happy. How do you how do you make the choice to to walk away? What how how intense was the feeling about VFA that you could walk away from something um, so secure and fulfilling? I mean, I did have a really excellent job. Uh, you know, I I love the people at Manhattan. You know, it's it's still like you know something I look back on very fondly and proudly. Um, I I owe. Zeke a lot. I owe everyone who worked in Manhattan GMAT a lot. I owe you a lot. I mean, I, I owe a lot of people a lot of things. Um, so the, in terms of the fire to leave, I just became possessed of this idea that we have tons of smart, uh, ambitious young people that were heading towards uh, these routes that weren't going to lead them where they wanted to go, and it wasn't going to lead our country or economy where, uh, where we all want to go. And so I thought that if I dedicated years of my life, I'd have a chance to maybe have a positive impact. And, and I also felt like I, I owed it to somebody because, you know, like, you know, I mean, my, uh, I started a company, didn't work out. I worked with these entrepreneurs and then, you know, eventually like, uh, you know, ha- had a pretty positive outcome. I just felt like very grateful and I felt like I needed to do something to repay it, uh, in, in a little bit. And, or a lot. I mean, to the extent that I, I could, uh, it just seemed like like to to not try to build Venture for America would have been shirking. I don't know how else to put it. Like, uh, like uh, you know, sometimes you get possessed of an idea and you just think like, okay, I'm gonna do everything I can to build it. And and that, that's the only way I know how to operate really is to commit fully to something. Like I, I can't, um, I, I turn, I can't like just sort of like cruise around in a job not not to say i mean you know being the um head of a company obviously is not like not like a cruising job anyway but um yeah so like the 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 founding of venture of america was something that i remember there's one day i just looked up and was like okay i'm gonna do this thing and then as soon as i decide okay i'm gonna do it then you know you're all in uh to have any chance at success absolutely so the <clears throat> the um was there a lag i mean was there did you take any time off at all I don't recall you taking time off. No, I, I had a plan to take time off, and then the calendar um, didn't cooperate, and I ended up taking, I think, 
like five days off or something like that. <laughs> so five days after you wrap up a Manhattan GMAT, you open the doors at Venture for America. What is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was on the founder, on, that was one of the, on, on the inaugural board, so I, I have a recollection of it, but what, what was it day one? I mean, who was there? And, and, <laughs> and uh, you're operating from some, from some, some, some uh, borrowed office space, uh, yes. if I recall. Um, tell us, give us a picture of, of VFA, you know, day one through, through, uh, through, I don't know, a couple months in. Sure. So my last day at work um, at Manhattan Prep was May 11th, 2011. So I remember that date. And I took about five days off. Uh, <laughs> and then um, we had borrowed office space at Manhattan Prep. And um, the, I'd hired uh, Eileen Lee, who's a COO. And then um, we had one person, Brielle Baudet, who's working in recruitment. Uh, and uh, and then the plan was to um, uh, to recruit the first class, which would require a lot of work on the ground. And uh, so, really, for the first number of months, really the rest of 2011, uh, Venture for America was borrowed office space, a PowerPoint deck, uh, me and two people, and uh, some press <laughs> because we we got some press on the way out. And and happily, there were people like you and and. Uh, um, other people that that uh, bought in early on a, as board members, so that you know, the, I don't want to um, diminish like what what we had in terms of assets. Monetarily, I'd put in one hundred twenty thousand of my own to see the organization was going out without salary, and our expenses were quite low at that time because we weren't paying rent, and there were only three of us, and I wasn't getting paid. So you know, we, we could stretch out the two hundred k or so we had pretty far. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. You know, things start to things start to take off. I mean, you alluded to already. You got the, some some positive press, um, but what what were the what were the first big uh, you know the first big big bangs? Where you're like, wow, this thing is this thing's you know it's it's grabbing people's attention. It's going to happen. How did you know that it that it was gonna it was gonna make it out of those early days of of self funding? Which I, I'm, I'm gonna uh, I'm supposed to be the, entre- the the interviewer here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna really tip my hat and, and in terms of bootstrapping a charitable organization, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, but but back to the question itself. I mean, when were you when were you out of the uh, when were you out of out of the the, the most vulnerable period? Well, you know that first year and a half was just scrapping the whole time and. Uh, I'd say, you know, it was probably about two years before it started feeling a little more stable. And even to this day, like there, there are times when it still feels like um, we just have so much in front of us, so much to do. But I remember a couple of things. I remember in November 2012, uh, we actually owed um, Brown University 50000 and had like 25000 in the bank. And then we got the bill. And I was I said to I Eileen, mean, was like, "Hey, what do we do with this?" Bill? I was like, "Don't pay it, don't pay it, don't worry about it, it'll be fine." <laughs> um, and then uh, happily, I got a call from uh, from uh, one of our major partners. It would become one of our major partners, but it wasn't the case at the time. Um, that uh, UBS, uh, the uh, head of community affairs, calls me and is like, "Hey, you know, we'd love to work with you. Um, you know, we're we're going to be uh, contributing two hundred thousand dollars to the effort, and then so we could pay the bill." <laughs> but this is November twenty twelve. 
And uh, and so, you know, from May 2011 to November 2012, it was hand-to-mouth the whole time. Um, you know, uh, we, we really um, uh, were, were very gritty during that time. And how long was it between opening the doors and arriving at the White House? And why don't you tell our listeners about, about, uh, about that? Well, so I got an email in uh, spring of 2012 um, saying, invitation to meet the president. And you get that email and you're like, what the heck, like, president of what? <laughs> that's, that's, that's really the, um, the question I had. Um, and then you look at it and you're like, you know what? I think they mean the president of the United States. Uh, and, and then you also think... Um, wow, like, I think it's real. <laughs> like, it seems to, like, has a White House logo on it. It looks like a, a genuine thing. Um, so I, I went to the White House and met with President Obama, uh, talked to him about Venture for America. And, uh, you know, this was very early on. This is honestly, in my opinion, um, before we'd done uh, enough to, to merit it. Um, but it certainly helped put a wind at our backs in terms of uh, people believing that we were um, onto something big. And, uh, and, 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 and then it just kind of exploded. I mean, you've, we've had a couple summer celebrations. We've had, uh, you know, Bloomberg in, Ariana Huffington, and, and uh, you got to fill in the gaps between, uh, between, between those two phases. Or are there? I mean, it's, it's been a pretty bit of a juggernaut, at least in terms of its, its public profile. Well, the, the, the universe has been very uh, pro-venture for America <laughs> from, from, from uh, the beginning. And I think it's because we're addressing something that everyone wants us to, to fix. So it helps... Th- young people and, and talented, aspiring entrepreneurs, because from experience, how do you get better as an entrepreneur? And, and that's really uh, one of the, the reasons why I'm, I'm very uh, glad to share you know, my early um, pitfalls and struggles, uh, because being an entrepreneur is super difficult, and the, most people are going to fail the first time out. If they're lucky, they're, they're starting very young, and then they can fail when they're like in high school, and then by the time they <laughs> come out, they're like already veterans. But how you get better as an entrepreneur is really a fundamental issue. And so what we're saying is the way you get better as an entrepreneur is by working with a more experienced entrepreneur for a couple of years. And that's certainly how I developed by working with um, Manu and Zeke and other people over the years. So we're helping on the talent side. On the company side, and you know this as the head of a, a small growth company, uh, it's really hard to find the right people. It's very hard to recruit. It's super resource intensive. Uh, the recruitment pipelines that major firms build up uh, cost millions or tens of millions a year, and so if you're a small firm trying to re- trying to compete for talent at the college level, it's such uh, an uh, uphill battle that it'd be futile for most companies. So the small and, and growing companies that are going to really serve as the engines of job growth in, in, in America aren't getting the talent that they need. I mean, the, consistently the very large firms in, in certain regions are going to be uh, able to enlist the, the best and brightest each year. So we're helping these small growth companies. We're helping communities around the country that aren't getting access to the talent natively. Uh, really, the Venture for America, I, I talk all the time about how it's enlightened self-interest. Uh, and I think that's one reason why we've uh, been able to, to grow as fast as we have. Give us a window into, into, the, uh, into the, the fellow experience. What does a fellow get out of Venture for America? Well... You know, we, we tried to imagine what would we want if we were graduating from college today. We were aspiring entrepreneurs. So if you get in, and it's very selective, this year we had uh, 1,600 applications for about 140 spots. So, you know, you can get, get a sense of what the acceptance rate is. Uh, you come to Brown University, my alma mater, uh, and spend five weeks there living and working. 
we bring in McKinsey and IDEO and the Flatiron School and other top firms to help give you a sense as to how to um, utilize design thinking or process engineering or some coding. And we, we have you work in teams, you make fast friends with each other, um, you bond socially, and then you go to different cities around the country and you work for an early stage growth company with a more experienced entrepreneur. Um, you live often uh, with other fellows or around other fellows and you operate for a couple of years. We have programs for you throughout, um, including uh, full-time programming staff to help try and develop you professionally. At the end of two years, you're either a manager and leader at this company, which is obviously a huge win for everyone, um, or you potentially even start your own company. And we have an accelerator and seed fund um, to support that. To to date, we have... uh, a couple dozen of our fellows have started 10 companies that are operating around the country, um, the biggest of which has raised about half a million and has already created uh, about 17 manufacturing jobs in Michigan. So, And this is something a company that was started by a 24-year-old. So, um, so it, it just goes to show that if you actually put support in place, you can drive very talented young people to, to build businesses that can help create jobs around the country. So if you can elaborate on that, on that particular success and maybe also highlight a few... Um, other successes, whether it's an individual is growing their own company or just really contributing at a high level to to a to an organization they might not have otherwise, uh, very likely otherwise, almost impossible to to, <laughs> to to have otherwise found that organization. Well, the the company I, I was referring to started by a guy named Brian Rudolph. He grew up in um, suburb of New York City. Went to Emory. Uh, turned out a consulting offer to join Venture for America, um, went to work at an e-commerce company in Detroit, which he had never been to. <laughs> so so the, I think you're right, the odds of that happening without us would be quite low. Um, so when he was in Detroit, now he's a bit of a health nut and he's um, gluten-free. So he was working on alternative pasta recipes to um, keep himself fit and healthy. And he started making this chickpea pasta in his kitchen in Detroit. And then he went through a bunch of iterations, and then he hit on something that he thought people would really like. And uh, fast forward now, it's a chickpea pasta company called Bonza that he's co-founded. Um, it's raised, again, about half a million, including uh, 75K from Joe Bastianich. Uh, it's being distributed in um, ShopRite, Sprout, Meyer. Italy and other stores around the country, and it's really good. I mean, my, my kid likes it. You know, I mean, anyone who's listening to this, if you want some, some free publicity here for uh, for Bonza, for Bonza I mean, yeah. yeah, it's a Bonza pasta. It's high protein, gluten free chickpea pasta, and it it's really fortifying. Um, so, and that that company's created again um, uh, seventeen manufacturing jobs in Michigan because someone has to um, make the pasta. And uh, it turns out that it's really hard to make pasta out of chickpeas. That, like, uh, you know, they went around the country trying to figure out where to do it, and it turns out, like, right there in Michigan was the best place for it. <laughs> so, so that's one um, success story. Uh, but we don't think that um, everyone needs to become the founder of a company to be a success. If anything, we think the founder role has been overblown. And certainly, I'd speak to that. I mean, I get way too much credit for Venture for America. I mean, there have been so many amazing people that have done uh, incredible work making it happen. So another uh, fellow, 2012, graduated from Boston College uh, named Sean Lane, who then worked for a company in Providence called Swipely, which was, at that time, it was, uh, I, I want to say it was like a couple dozen people. And since then, Sean's grown to become one of the key guys there, and it's like managing a whole team of, you know, I think over a dozen people. And again, this is like a 24-year-old um, who who's uh, uh, really helped 
drive the growth of the company. They've raised, I think it was $12 million from first round capital and off to the races. And, and Sean's now a, a key figure there. So uh, we think that every growth company needs a whole nucleus of talented team members early on. And if our fellows become uh, part of that nucleus, and that's uh, that's the goal. That, that's a huge win. It's not that everyone needs to start a company because, again, um, you know, like uh, being a founder is just one thing, and every company needs dozens of very strong people to, to thrive. So, give us the VFA then and now. In, in year one, how many cities? Was, how many fellows? Um, how many applicants? And, and today, how many cities? How many fellows? How many applicants? Well, in, in that first season, and I remember this vividly because the way we got that first several hundred applicants was just me going to college campuses. Like, I visited 30 college campuses. I've been all around the country. And I, I'd go and I'd show up someplace, and sometimes there'd be literally two people there. I would have been, been there, and then I'd just get excited for those two people and, like, hope that one of them <laughs> was into it or they'd tell a friend. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that first year was like... Um, you know, it's like, hey, who wants to be an entrepreneur? Like, you know, um, and then they raise their hand and then say, how many of you are going to go to an investment bank or management consulting firm or even law school to quote unquote learn about business before you try and do something? And they all raise their hand. Say, how many of you would actually prefer to go work at a startup if we could provide some of the same um, training and network and support that you get at these big firms? So uh, that first year, we had about 300 applicants for 40 spots. Um, we were in five cities uh, Detroit, New Orleans. Providence, Cincinnati, and Las Vegas. Um, this year, again, we had 1,600 applications for about 140 spots, and uh, we're in 15 cities. Um, so we've grown a lot. Uh, our budget, which I think of because that's what happens if you're the CEO of an organization, you start thinking about the budget. <laughs> so um, our, our budget that first year was uh, about 200000 the majority of which was mine. <laughs> and then this year, our budget will be uh, about $5 million. Um, so we've grown a lot in the last four years. And again, that, that there were a lot of people that made that happen. Is, is, is it even possible to max out on cities and, and, and locations? I mean, doesn't everyone need entrepreneurship? Yeah, really. I mean, entrepreneurship is just value add. It's like, you know, it's a pure good. Uh, you know, I think about the conceptual limits of what we do, and I certainly think on the talent side, we're just scratching the surface because how many young people want to learn how to build a business? Uh, you know, I mean, even our 1,600 applications this year, I think that could easily be 16,000 or 60,000. Um, and where we're not investing heavy-duty resources uh, into um, goosing our numbers, honestly. We're, like, we're, we're not trying to just like drive up like applicant levels. Um, we're just looking for the right people. And then to your point, uh, how many early-stage growth companies are there in our current 15 cities plus Omaha plus... Um, uh, Boise plus, uh, you know, like any number of the, the other cities uh, that are calling us, honestly. They're literally calling us saying like, hey, um, you know, please come to, to our region. Um, so the, the sky's the limit in terms of the potential impact. And uh, it, it's exciting to try and build a bridge to connect the talent to the need. I mean, there are cities who are calling you, and there are cities who are, who are rolling out the welcome mat. I think, uh, I mean, I believe Cincinnati was one of them that just kind of just demanded that VFA show up in town. Uh, um, why don't you tell us about so, about about that experience or the experience of transitioning from uh, from from selling to uh, to to being wooed? Well, Cincinnati, I, I do remember this. Like, we get a, a call from Eric Avner, who's the uh, senior executive at uh, the Hale Foundation, U.S. Bank Foundation there. And uh, he said, hey, come to Cincinnati. And we're like, ah, oh, you know, we don't want to bite off too much uh, just now, uh, just this year. And he said, well, will you have a conference call? And I was like, sure, I'll do a conference call. I mean, it'd be kind of rude to say no to that. And so then 
the morning of the conference call, I ask, like, who's going to be on this call? And they send over a list, and it's literally, like, 20 uh, business leaders, community leaders, heads of foundations, entrepreneurs. And then at that point, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, like, this is actually uh, a lot of the people that we'd want to know in this um, in this region. And then after that call, they invited us out there and drove us around and just had us meet with uh, various companies and leaders. And so at that point, uh, it seemed like a no-brainer to to expand to Cincinnati. And uh, they were early in terms of uh, figuring out what we could do. And so we we do get calls. I got a call from the mayor of Boise. (laughs) I mean, that's why it was top of mind. Um, And... uh, you know, we said that he found out about us from the mayor of another city, and and, and so uh, there there are now are like incoming um, incoming requests, uh, which certainly w- was not always the case. So we have cities beating down your door. We have we have more applicants than we need. Um, what are the not that not to be not to be flippant? I mean, obviously we cherish every applicant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what are some of the challenges for VFA going forward? You know, a, a lot of it really is about trying to meet the need on both sides because uh, right now we've just kept up with demand. Um, but there, there's a documentary being filmed on Venture for America right now. It's going to come out next year, and I have a feeling that that's going to end up driving awareness. Uh, you know what? What I, I never want to do is I never want to uh, turn down someone because we just don't have the capacity. Like it, it's always been driven by how many people we think um, have the right qualities to potentially uh, contribute to the growth of a company or start their own someday. Um, and that's what I want to do. I just want to keep up with that, um, which is going to mean significant resources. Uh, right now, we're spending about thirty thousand per fellow on recruitment, selection, training, placement, programming, support, and investment. Uh, which is uh, actually lower than um, the analogous rate for organizations like ours that invest in, in fellowship programs. Uh, and so it's going to be, to, to me, the challenge of the organization to figure out just uh, how big we can get. Um, because like you said, uh, there's no limit to the amount of good we can do. I mean, it's not like you've ever found a place and said, hey, you know what, this place doesn't need more entrepreneurs. <laughs> So, so, you know, lay it out for me, you know, 10 years from now, where, what do you expect VFA to be, um, kind of a, a, a full-fledged, mature organization? What does VFA look like? Well, it, it's funny, because 10 years from now is when our benchmark uh, of 100,000 new U.S. jobs is, is set for. Our, our goal is to help create 100,000 new U.S. jobs by 2025. And for the discussion around job growth, we think it's really straightforward how you do it. First, you help early-stage companies access the talent they need to expand and grow, to hire more people. And uh, people always fixate on money when it, it comes to small companies. When if you go to any entrepreneur, you say, hey, what do you need? They're, they'll always say, I need more talent. I need more human capital. I need more smart people uh, to work with me. If you gave them the money, you know what they do? They turn around and try and hire a smart person. <laughs> uh, so uh, you provide these companies with access to the talent that they need to grow. And then you ask your top prospects to become business builders and operators and job creators, as opposed to asking them to get their hands stamped and become, you know, a corporate service provider or, you know, like a, a deal person. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with those things, but, you know, we probably have an overabundance of um, service providers at this point and not enough people building and operating. 
uh, you know, there's a business school professor at Harvard who complained to me. He said, like, there's no one in my class that uh, is an operator, like, because <laughs> his class is just filled with people who are analysts and, and uh, consultants. So. Uh, we ask our, our young people to become the, the kind of operators that can give rise to job-creating businesses. And uh, if we do those two things at high enough levels, then we can help create 100,000 new U.S. jobs in the next 10 years. Andrew, I want to give you the last word. Uh, um, what uh, um, you know, It's been a tremendous path, and, and uh, there's you know, presidents along the way, and, and a book that's been written, and uh, an inspiration for this podcast here, where we are today. Um, uh, I'll let you, uh, <laughs> if there's anything, if anything you feel like you want our listeners to hear, it's, it's all yours. You know, I, I've learned a lot over the last four years, that's for sure, and I'm sure I'll learn a lot more in the next four. No, but I, I think the single biggest thing I've learned is just how personal it gets um, in, in terms of the types of companies these young people start and, and really like how, how they go about uh, evolving into the kind of people that can do great things. Uh, if you believe in science, which I do, <laughs> like our brains don't finish wiring until we're in our mid-20s, like 25, 26. So no one graduates from college with finished product, which it shouldn't be shocking because I certainly was highly unfinished uh, when I graduated from college. And so the, the question is, how does someone uh, get completed as an individual? Like, w- what you do for those first, let's say, four years after school can become very, very formative in terms of the kind of person you are and the values uh, that you have and you live. Uh, and so that, that's been the most profound thing about Venture for America, is seeing these young people uh, mature into, in, in some cases, like the best possible versions of themselves. And it turns out if you have really, really strong people then you end up with people that are more likely to start organizations that will have a positive impact in their community. And, and so, you know, if you want to create companies, you have to help create people um, that will create quality companies. Andrew Yang, uh, thanks so much for joining us for a podcast that you kind of had to come to, but was still uh, a lot of fun. And uh, I know you wanted to be here. Or I'm, uh, maybe I'm projecting. No, I, no, I it, you it, to be here. it's great. This, this, this <laughs> podcast is now my proudest accomplishment. There we go. Yeah, it's an old friend of mine and, uh, and a great interview. And, uh, and thanks for being here. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.